0: Let us all turn together to the word of God this evening. And you will find your place there in the Bible, the book of Ruth, and the chapter 1. You can read through the book of Ruth at one sitting. Its message is very striking. Certainly important with much application to the heart of the Christian and there's a message as well for the unconverted. Ruth chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons and the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the name of his two sons Marlon and Kilion Ephrathites of Bethlehem Judah They came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the woman of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Killian died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters in law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters in law with her. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, "'Surely we will return with thee unto thy people.' And Naomi said, "'Turn again, my daughters. "'Why will you go with me? "'Are there yet any more sons in my womb "'that they may be your husbands? "'Turn again, my daughters.' Go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say, I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes. The hand of the Lord is gone out against me, And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, "Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go; where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried." the Lord do so to me and more also of aught but death part thee and me. And she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her. Then she left speaking unto her. Oh, may the Lord tarry in our midst tonight, blessing His Word, both read and preached, even for His name's sake. Amen.
1: The Book of Ruth again, the very first chapter. And a number of weeks ago, we began to look at some of the great conversions uh, in the Old Testament. Men and women from different backgrounds with different needs and personalities and how they came to know the God of Israel, the true and living God. we thought about Abram, we've thought about Moses, we've thought about Rahab and tonight we're coming to think about Ruth. And all of these conversion stories are unique. Every one of them is entirely different and yet the same grace that reached them is the same grace that has reached many in this meeting tonight and we trust will reach many, many more. Let's keep our Bibles open, Ruth chapter 1, and let's pray together now that God will speak. Let's pray. Father, we praise and thank Thee for the wonderful experience of conversion. We thank Thee, Lord God, that Thou art the one that is able to save to the uttermost. And we pray in the Savior's name, O God, that Thou will come by Thy Spirit, write Thy Word upon hearts. We pray, O God, that our hearts might be blessed again as we sit around the open Word of God, and we pray that Thou wilt meet each one in this meeting at the point of need and others that are joining online, and we trust as well for others who will listen in the days and weeks that lie ahead. Father, we pray that Thou wilt be pleased to save, and grant, O God, that the Son of God Himself will be exalted and uplifted, and that everything that is of man might be hidden behind the cross, and that honor and praise and glory will be brought to Thy holy name. Grant the infilling now and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we pray tonight, O God, that Thou wilt give liberty and help in this meeting. We pray against the devil who is so active snatching away the seed of God's Word. We pray that Thou will put him to flight and put a hedge around about this place. May everything dovetail together, O God, for Thy glory and for the good of precious souls. Hear and answer prayer. We ask it all with thanksgiving. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. This little book of Ruth, like every other book in the Bible, is given by inspiration of God. The Bible makes it very clear that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It literally means that all Scripture is God-breathed. Or as the Savior said, that the Scriptures proceed out of the mouth of God. And this little book of Ruth is a wonderful wonderful book it's beautifully written it's a it's a piece of literature of the highest caliber benjamin franklin was one of the founding fathers of the united states of america and it's often said that he was instrumental in drafting the declaration of independence he was a man of great ability and also a man of great intellect. We're not sure if he was a a born-again Christian or not, but he certainly had a a level of respect for the Word of God, the Bible. On one occasion, he was serving in a French court amongst some of the nobility in France, the aristocrats, they were called. And, And as he was meeting with these individuals, some of them began to put down the Bible. They said it was unworthy of reading, and they said it lacked in style and so on and so forth, but Benjamin Franklin knew better. And what he did was he he, he went home and he took his Bible and he went to the Book of Ruth and he began to write out longhand the Book of Ruth, but he changed all of the personal pronouns the place names and the names of the people in the book of Ruth and changed them all to French names. Any towns or cities or localities that are mentioned, he gave them French names. Any people who were mentioned, he gave them French names. And the next time he met with those individuals, the assembled elite of France, he opened this document that he had written out and he began to read it out word for word. And the French aristocrats were amazed at the style of this piece of literature and the content and the wonderful flow of the text and the the wonderful story that was unfolding. And they asked Benjamin Franklin, where did you find such literature? We have never heard this reading before. It's incredible, it's amazing. And they couldn't speak highly enough of it. And Benjamin Franklin says it comes from that old book that you so despise the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. The book of Ruth is beautifully written, and the subject matter in the book of Ruth is beautiful as well. It concerns, of course, Ruth, the the title character. Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabite. Ruth was an outsider to the covenant promises that God had given to His people Israel. The story takes place during the days of Judges. That's the first statement that is made in this little book. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. And we know from the very last verse of the previous book, the book of Judges itself, that in those days there was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right, In his own eyes. And the spiritual climate is seen there. It was a a, a day and generation of moral decline in Judah. It was a day of departure from the living God. But in the process of time, in the first chapter, in the book of Ruth, this Moabite girl would draw near to the God of Israel, while the nation of Israel was departing in many respects from the God that they should have been loving and serving. And as Ruth drew near unto the Lord and was wonderfully saved and converted, Ruth began to shine brightly for the God that had saved her and from the God that she had, had come to know. She figures Over there in the Gospel of Matthew, in the opening chapter, in verse number 5 of Matthew chapter 1, this genealogy, the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, it says in verse 5, Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and there's Ruth right in the middle of this great genealogy that shows the lineage of her Savior and how he came to be born into this world of ours. And it's interesting there that she's mentioned right alongside Rahab, who we considered last Lord's Day evening. And then a week or two before that, Abram as well. These were individuals, outsiders who were brought in. And it's wonderful that the Lord Jesus Christ It's not a shame to call them brethren and to call them sisters. She kneeled her colors to the mast, did Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And treat me not to leave thee, nor to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. She's trusting the God of Israel. She's trusting Jehovah God. And I believe that this wonderful statement of faith that Ruth made in verses 16 and 17 took place, literally, at a crossroads in life. We read in verse number 11 that Naomi turned and said unto her daughters-in-law, My daughters, why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? And she told Ruth and Orpah to go back into Moab. And so it was a crossroads, a place of decision. Either go forward with God or go back to the old life. And we're going to see tonight how Ruth came to this crossroads. What happened at the crossroads? And then what happened after The crossroads. Verses 1 to 5 show us how Ruth ultimately came to be at this juncture, this crossroad experience in her life. Verses 1 to 5. Let's consider the events leading up to the crossroads. It's remarkable, this story, and it's told in several stages. Verse number 1 makes reference to a famine in Bethlehem came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and it was a famine in the land of Bethlehem, Judah. Now, the word Bethlehem means the house of bread, and that's where the Lord Jesus Christ was born. He is the bread of life. He is the bread that came down from heaven, and it's interesting that He was born in the house of bread. And here there's another reference in Ruth 1 verse 1 to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And it's interesting that in this occasion, there was no bread in the house. Seems unusual at a place like Bethlehem, the house of bread. There was no bread in the house. Bread is a staple diet. Bread is often a necessity. I heard about a man that once went to a very fancy restaurant. There was a sign outside the door And it says you can order anything even if it is not on the menu. And in fact, if you order something that is not on the menu and we're not able to supply it, you can eat for free. And he thought, well, that sounds like a good offer. I'll go in and ask for something unusual. And he went in and the waiter came over and said, sir, what will you want? And he says, well, I've noticed your sign outside the door that if I order anything and you can not supply it, I eat for free. He says, I would like a poached. Ostrich egg on toast. And the waiter went away into the kitchen and came back a few minutes later and said, Sir, I have to acknowledge that we can't meet your order. And the customer said, well, I didn't think you would have any ostrich eggs. And he says, oh, sir, we've got plenty of ostrich eggs. The problem is we have no bread. Nobody ever asked for something as simple as bread in this place. We don't have any bread. And I wonder tonight, do you have the bread of life in your home? Do you have the bread of life in your family? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? There was a famine in the land. There was no bread. Now, famine in Bible times was often God's chastening and God's uh, display of divine displeasure against the sins of His people. Back there in Leviticus chapter 26 We read about God saying and challenging his people. It says in verse 21 of Leviticus 26, If ye walk contrary to me, and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. And he talks about the wild beast. He talks about the sword in the land. He talks about pestilence in the land. And then in verse number 26, the Lord speaks about famine. He says, when I have broken the staff of your bread, ten women shall bake her bread in one oven and shall deliver you your bread again by weight. And ye shall eat and not be satisfied. There will not be enough bread whenever the children of Israel depart from the Lord. And this was characteristic now of the days of the judges. Israel and Judah were far, far away from God. And maybe tonight in your life there's discontentment and there's dissatisfaction and you're hungry and you're empty and you're dissatisfied with life. You might have more material possessions than you've ever had before. You might have more money in the bank than you've ever had before. But this emptiness inside, because you've walked away from God, I believe the Nations of the West are experiencing a time of spiritual drought and spiritual famine. God's servant Amos spoke about such a day whenever there would be a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And we are living in a day like that. There's a famine of hearing. The word of God is no longer precious to individuals. And it seems that people nowadays are starving for want of the living bread. Looking for other things, like the days of Jeremiah. Forsaken the God of Israel, the fountain of living waters. And shewing out broken cisterns that hold no water. There was a famine in Bethlehem. You'll notice also in verse number 1 of Ruth chapter 1, the folly of Elimelech. It says, On a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech." Now, the name Elimelech means, my God is king. And Elimelech, being a Jew, certainly, the God that he professed was certainly king. God rules and reigns in glory. He's sovereign in all his ways. He's the God of Israel and he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But the problem was, Elimelech wasn't living up to his name. He wasn't living in that reality. God did not seem to really be King of his life. And whenever this great famine arose in the land and in the region of Bethlehem, Judah, it says that Elimelech went to sojourn in Moab. Now, the idea of sojourning is, is a, a, a kind of a temporary thing. He wasn't going to get his roots down in Moab. That was his plan anyway. He was only going to sojourn there for a little while, maybe a number of weeks or months or a year perhaps at best. And then whenever the famine would end in, in Bethlehem and Judah, he would go back. He didn't mean to get his roots down in Moab. He only meant to go there for a short time and and sojourn. It was a temporary move as far as he was concerned. But the reality was that for Elimelech, it would be the last move that he would ever make. He would never return to Bethlehem. He would never be back in Judah again. And you'll notice there that it just seems to indicate that he made this decision and he took his wife and his two boys and off they go to Moab. And it doesn't record that he prayed about this. It doesn't say that he got before the Lord and said like Saul, whenever he was being converted, what wilt thou have me to do? It just seems that Elimelech, like Lot, looked at this far-off nation in this far-off land and thought, well, there's no famine there. I could survive better there. I could provide better for my family there. I would be happier there. I would be more satisfied down there. And he didn't seek counsel from God. And he took his wife and the two young lads running along in either side of them. And off they go to sojourn in Moab. But Moab was a godless place. In Moab they worshiped false gods. In Moab they were given to idolatry. In Moab they had no thought of the law of God. In Moab they had no thought or respect or recognition of the God of Israel. God said in Psalm 60 and verse number 8, Moab is my wash pot. It was a term of derision. And he was just saying that Moab was unclean and Moab was a a vile place, a place to be despised. And that's where Elimelech took his wife and his children to try to escape this famine. And you see there the folly of Elimelech, the folly of a father, not only departing from God himself, but taking his wife and his children, his children along with him. And what heartache and what despair they would experience for the next decade down there in Moab. Verse number one, famine in Bethlehem. Verses one and two, the folly of Elimelech. Verse number four, you've got the forming of a marriage, or rather the forming of two marriages. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives... Of the woman of Moab, the name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwell there about ten years. These two young lads, Jewish men, growing up now in Moab, meet with Moabite women and they enter into marriage unions with them. And dear friends, that was something that God expressly forbade back there in the book of Deuteronomy. We read there that it says in Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, and the first three verses, when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and thou hast cast out many nations before thee, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perivites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thyself. It says in verse number two, thou shalt make no covenant with them, Verse number 3, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter shalt thou not give unto his son, nor his daughter shall I take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly. And if you go into the book of Ezra, and you go into the book of Nehemiah, you will discover that multitudes of young Jewish men entered into marriage relationships with the nations outside of Israel, and very oftentimes the Moabites were included. And we are living in a day and generation where people frown at these Old Testament principles as if they are outdated. But the word of God is very clear in the Old Testament as well as the New. That God's people are not to enter into unequal yokes. And marriage is a yoke. Marriage is a covenant. And the Bible is very clear. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what concord hath Christ with Belial... What concord hath light with darkness? What part has he that believeth with an infidel? And many young professing Christians have ignored that principle and ignored that precept and entered into the unequal yoke and married outside of the will of God and have brought heartache and misery into their lives and raised children in a divided home And maybe got away from God themselves. Malon and Killian were young men. In fact, we we read a little bit later on in chapter 4 of Ruth and verse number 10 that Malon was the one that married Ruth. And Malon's name, it means sickly. And the sad reality is that he didn't have all that long to live in Moab. Neither had Elimelech. Neither had Kelion, because whenever you consider the famine in in Bethlehem and the folly of Elimelech and the forming of a marriage, in verses 3 and in verse number 5, you've got the fatalities in the family. Verse number 3 speaks about the death of Elimelech. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left under two sons. And the two sons were there for about 10 years and then they died as well. So Elimelech didn't really have all that long in Moab. He went down to sojourn there for a short while until the famine would pass. And he never anticipated whenever he took his wife and his two boys that they would be there for a longer period than he anticipated. He would never be back in Bethlehem. He would never be back in Judah. He would die as a relatively young man. And the two boys that he would leave behind would enter into marriage relationships with two Moabites. It's like the old hymn says, sin will take you further than you want to go. Slowly, but wholly taking control. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you far more than You want to pay. Elimelech died in verse 3. Then in verse number 5, Malon and Kilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. They never got out of Moab alive either. And we do not know where these young men went to in eternity. All we know is they died in Moab. They died shortly after marrying Moabite woman. And it seems that Elimelech, Malon, and Kilian left no solid testimony behind that they knew and loved and served the God of Israel. It seems that they were in the wrong place whenever they left this world and they left this scene of time. Malon, Kilian, and the Limelech all died. Have you ever thought about the day whenever you will leave this scene of time? Where you will be whenever you die? Where you will be spiritually whenever you die? Here you are tonight in a warm church amongst God's people, and probably the vast majority of you profess faith. But let's suppose we go 10 years from now. Where will you be 10 years from now? Elimelech never thought that within 10 years, he and his two sons would be dead and that they would die in Moab. He never intended that or planned for that at all. But that's what happened. And whenever the Son of God was on this earth, in John chapter 8, he said to the religious crowd in His day, ye shall die in your sins. And whither I go, ye cannot come. And he repeated that in verse 21 and verse 24 of John chapter 8. Ye shall die in your sins. And that's an awful thing. To die in your sins. To die unready to meet God. To die unprepared. And this was the whole process that brought Ruth and Orpah and Naomi back to this crossroads. And maybe whenever Naomi was coming back down the road, just over 10 years later, she recognized this crossroads. She'd been that way before. Now she's traveling a different direction. Verse number six, it says that she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord, or Jehovah, had visited His people back there in Bethlehem, Judah, uh, in giving them bread. And the providence of God now is bringing Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, her two daughters-in-law, bringing them all, three of them together, to this crossroads. Now let's just think for a few moments about these three women at this crossroads. Think about Naomi at the crossroads. Naomi knew, probably knew as soon as she set foot in Moab, now there's going to come a day whenever I'm going to have to go back to Bethlehem. That's my home. They're my people. I don't really belong in Moab. I don't feel at home in Moab. And she knew that there would come a day whenever she would have to retrace her steps and go back. And that might be something that resonates in your heart and life today. You know that you're not in the place where you ought to be. And you know that you'll need to retrace your steps and go back to where you once were, back to the Word of God, back to the place of prayer. Back to the place of fellowship with God. Naomi knew that she had to get back to Israel. And in verse number six, she makes that decision. She arose with her daughters in law that she might return from the country of Moab. Why did she arrive at this decision? Because she had heard in Moab that God, Jehovah the Lord, had visited the Jewish people and God had given them bread. It's a picture, really. Of revival. Now, if only Elimelech and Naomi had stayed in Bethlehem and stayed in Judah, they would have experienced the visitations of God and the blessings of God. And God returning amongst His people and satisfying His people and reviving His people and turning this famine situation around. If only they had stayed and tarried during those hard and barren and difficult days, everything would have been so different. But they really missed out on God's blessing. And now she's making that long, arduous journey back. I don't know about you, but... In these barren and dry days, I don't want to depart from God. I don't want to go into Bypath Meadows. I don't want to go into the world. I don't want to miss the blessing of God. I wouldn't like to be out there in the world and then suddenly God comes and God visits His people. And God revives His people. And God feeds His people. And God blesses His people and God visits His people. I want to be there whenever that happens. And I'm trusting and praying and believing that it will happen. That God will come. And in these days of spiritual drought and spiritual famine, that the Lord that we seek might arise and come suddenly to his temple and visit his people again and break bread and feed his people and revive us and strengthen us again. But ultimately, Naomi decided to return. She's coming back from years of barrenness and years of backsliding, coming back to your first love. I can't see into anybody's heart this evening, but I wonder if there's somebody here tonight, and maybe not outwardly, but inwardly you're cold in heart, you've backslidden, you've got away from God, and you need to return to your first love. Verse number six, there's a decision. But in verse number 7, with regards to Naomi, there's a dilemma. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi had been left penniless. She was hungry. She was going back to Judah for food. I believe literally to stay alive. And Ruth and Orpah joined her, and now she's in a dilemma. She feels somehow responsible for their plight. They've been bereaved of their husbands. They could have married Moabites, but they married her two backslidden sons, and Here they are now, and they're penniless, and they join Naomi, and she doesn't maybe know what the future holds for her, and she doesn't know what it holds for Ruth and Orpah either. You know, things get so, so complicated in the lives of God's people whenever Bible principles are violated and the Word of God is put to one side. Things can get so, so complicated whenever scriptural principles are violated. And here's Naomi. She's made this decision but she's facing a dilemma. What do I do with these two young women? How am I going to provide for them? They're Moabites. If I bring them into Israel, the word of God she knows forbids that Jewish men would marry these two Moabite girls. And she's got this great dilemma, problems in the family. Problems in the home. And you can trace it all back to a decision that Elimelech made a decade previous without prayer, without thought. Thought he was doing the right thing by his family. But he was really opening a hornet's nest of confusion that would be very difficult to sort out. A decision in verse 6. A dilemma in verse 7. Verses 8 through to 13, there's a deliberation. Now, it's so interesting how Naomi speaks to Ruth and Orpah. She isn't trying to bribe them into coming with her. She isn't inviting them to come with her. She isn't even suggesting that they come with her. She isn't even asking that they come with her. In fact, she is telling them, go back to Moab. I don't think that was good advice at all. But certainly she wasn't trying to coerce them into traveling a road that they didn't want to travel. And she deliberates with them. And she says, listen, you know, I'm not going to be able to provide new husbands for you two girls. I'm not going to be able to provide for all of your needs. If you leave Moab and you come with me, you're turning your back on your old life. You'll probably never see your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your siblings ever again. This is going to be costly. Are you willing to pay the price? It's not easy believism at all. She's telling her daughters-in-law this can be costly. This for you might be a very lonely road. And she's not cajoling them and painting a, a picture of a bed of roses if they come with her. It might be hard, it might be difficult, it might be lonely. And in John chapter 6, at the end of the chapter, we read concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, that many of His disciples from that time walked no longer with Him. Many turned back, outward disciples, but inwardly they'd never been born again. And whenever they were challenged about counting the cost and taking up the cross, nailing their collars to the mass. Many did not want to go through with God. And the Savior turned to the twelve that remained and said to them, Will ye also go away? John 6, and 67. Will ye also go away? Saying to them, Listen, the door's open. I'm not coercing any of you. I don't want conscripts. I want willing disciples. I'm not promising you an easy life. I'm challenging you to take up the cross. And Naomi did not want these two women just to blindly follow her into what they might take to be a life of ease whenever it might be a life of hardship and difficulty. Naomi at the crossroads. What about Orpah at the crossroads? Orpah was brought to the place of consideration. So was Ruth. They were both brought to the place of understanding. And we read there in verse number 14 that they lifted up their voice and wept. It's decision time. They're at the crossroads. Naomi is going back to Judah. Orpah is making the choice, I'm going back to Moab. Naomi has been honest. Ruth and Orpah are counting the cost. And Orpah is concluding that this is too costly. I have gone so far. I have reached this crossroads. I'm not sure that I really want to walk with this God that you've spoken about. I'm going back to Moab. She went halfway, like Lot's wife. And then when she counted the cost, she turned around at the crossroads and she went back to Moab. And many in our then generation are doing the same. The heat has been turned up maybe a little bit in her land in recent years. And if you're going to stand up and be counted for Jesus Christ, it might be costly. And the Lord's looking for people that are going to stand up and nail their colors to the mast. Orpah wasn't willing to pay the price. Do you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Whenever Pilgrim flees from the city of destruction, there's a a young lad that comes with him. His name is Pliable. And he asks Pilgrim where he's going, and Pilgrim speaks about the celestial city and all of its majesty and all of its splendor and little Pliable tags along with him. And then they reach the slough of despond, the first hardship that they reach. And Pliable gets so discouraged that he decides, listen, this isn't for me. I'm going back to the city of destruction. And that's the same thing that Orpah is doing. And the Word of God counts that a very serious thing. Hebrews chapter 10 says in verse number 38, Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back onto perdition, but of them that believe unto the saving of the soul. And the author of the book of Hebrews there is teaching us that faith is a lifetime thing. It's not that I have believed, but I do believe, and I will believe, that Jesus died for me, and the cross is now before me, and the world is behind me, and there's no turning back. I'm in this, and it's a lifetime commitment. But Orpah went back. Notice Ruth at the crossroads. Verse number 16. Her reaction was entirely different to that of Orpah. Ruth makes a realization she realizes this is not going to be an easy life. If I go with my mother-in-law, I'm going to have to turn my back on Moab. I'm going to have to turn my back on all my false gods. I'll probably never see my family and my loved ones again. It's going to mean a massive change in my life. A change of the gods that I serve. A change of direction. A change of life, a change of behavior, but this was true conversion, turning around from the road that she's on, and trusting the true and living God. It's also going to be a life of satisfaction. Because there's bread now in Israel. Realization, there's also a decision. Ruth, it says in verse 14: Cleave unto her, she cleave unto Naomi. Orpah has decided to go back. But Ruth is deciding to go on and through with God, regardless of how costly it is to herself. She wants to know and walk with the true God of heaven. She has come to understand who he is. Verses 16 and 17, you've got her confession. Somebody said that verses 16 and 17 of Ruth chapter 1, are some of the greatest words spoken by a Gentile in all the word of God. You can't be much clearer than Ruth as far as being converted is concerned. Entreat me not to leave thee, nor to return from following after thee. For where thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God shall be my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord Jehovah do so to me, and more also if ought, but death part me and thee. She's saying, Naomi, I'm in this for life. Your God is going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. And I'm leaving Moab behind. I'm going to Israel, and if it means dying there, I will die there. And this is the type of resolve I believe that God is looking for in the hearts and lives of those who profess His name. That they're in this for life. It's a lifetime commitment, a true turning, a true converting unto God. They often talk about Duncan Campbell. You know that. Duncan Campbell was converted just outside of the town of Oban in the lower highlands on the west coast of Scotland in a dance hall of all places. He was sitting at the front of the dance hall. He was playing the bagpipes. People were dancing all around him. And all of a sudden, in a moment of time, he came under conviction of sin. He was playing an old tune called The Green Hills of Tyrol. But all of a sudden, his heart and his thought was taken away to another hill, a hill called Calvary. He said, it was so vivid in my thoughts. It was almost as if I could hear the dull thud of a hammer driving spikes through the feet and hands of the Son of God. He stood up, he set the bagpipes on the stage, he walked down towards the the door of the hall, and the chairman of the dance hall says, Duncan, where are you going? He says, I'm going home, I'm troubled about my soul. And unless I'm greatly mistaken, I'll never be back in a place like this. The chairman laughed and says, you'll get over that soon enough. But he didn't get over it. He walked out, he walked towards the end of the roads, and he came to a crossroads. And as he stood at the crossroads, deliberating whether or not to go back, he heard the footsteps of a friend coming behind him. And he was under conviction as well. And they talked together for a little while at the crossroads about the state of their souls. His friend says, Duncan, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going home to get right with God. And he walked that road home. It was two or three miles. And in the course of his walk home, he passed the church that he attended as a little boy. And the light was on in the church. And he looked through the doors of the church, and there were five or six men on their knees praying at the front of the church. One of the men was his own father, and they were praying that God would save their children. By the time he got home after midnight, there was a light on in the kitchen, which was an unusual thing. And he went into the kitchen, and there was his mother on her knees beside the aga stove, and she was praying for the conversion of her boy. And he just poured out his heart said how he felt. She says, Duncan, best thing for you to do, go outside and go into the barn and just tell God what you've told me. And he wept his way into the kingdom of God. And a short while later, whenever he got up off his knees, he was a new creature in Christ and his life was changed forever. See, at the crossroads, he had made the right choice. He had made the right decision. Many, many years later, that other young man, now as an aged man, was confronted with the gospel and challenged about his soul. And he held up his hand and he said to the person who was speaking to him, speak to me no more about that matter. I made my choice the night Duncan Campbell of the faith mission was converted. Two people at a crossroads. Physically going separate directions, but spiritually and eternally going different directions. I wonder tonight are you at a crossroads in your life? Choose Jesus Christ. Side with God even if it's costly. We're almost finished. Verse number 19. So they two, that is Naomi and Ruth, went until they came to Bethlehem. And that just opens the rest of the book in a beautiful way. The two of them now are making for Bethlehem because conversion, friends, tonight is only the beginning. And if you look at the book of Ruth, you'll discover that Ruth became a worshiper. She forsook the gods of Moab. She trusted Jehovah as her God. She became a worshiper. Chapter 2 and verse number 2 says that she went to glean in the fields. Not only did she become a worshiper, but she became a worker. She began to serve and she began to work. She was not idle in Bethlehem, but she became a worker. The Bible says faith without works is dead. Not only did she become a worshiper and a worker, but according to Ruth chapter 4 and verse number 13, she became a wife. Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception and she bare a son. She became wife to Boaz. And the whole theme of the book of Ruth is the fact that Boaz. Was her redeemer, her kinsman redeemer. And she became the wife of the one that redeemed her. It's a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. One day, before all the world and before all the nations of the earth, Jesus Christ, in a public manner, will show that his bride, those that he has redeemed, The church is his bride, the church is his wife. I wonder tonight, have you been redeemed? Wonder tonight, have you ever been to the cross? I wonder tonight, have you ever truly trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you're not converted tonight, we've endeavored to bring you to a crossroads. I wonder tonight what you will do with Jesus Christ. Pilate asked that all-important question, What then shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? What will you do tonight with the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you take Him and trust Him as your Savior, as your Redeemer, and become part of His spotless bride, and be converted and enter into newness of life? May God bless you richly. Thank you so much for listening this evening. 293 is our closing hymn, 293. If we can help anybody tonight at all, that's why we're here. We'd love to point you to the cross.